But it's good to see you all. If you're new, I'm Jamie, and uh, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible provided for you in the pew in front of you, and you'll find Acts, chapter 2. The passage we'll be reading on page 911, page 911 of the church Bible. If you Probably already picked up on this uh, by now, but we are starting a new series, taking a break from our journey through the Gospel of Luke, which we've been in for a good bit and will be, Lord willing. Normally, we take a book of the Bible and we sort of work through it verse by verse, but every now and then, it's helpful to consider a topic and to collect the relevant Scripture verses which speak to that topic. And so, That's what we'll be doing this series, and we're going to be bouncing around in Scripture a little bit today. So rather than camping out in one text as we generally do, we're going to take a look at several different texts. So keep your Bible open and in your lap and ready to be moved along. Piqua Baptist Church exists to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ in Piqua, Miami County, and the world. And we seek to do this using four means, God-given means. The first is gospel-centered preaching. The second is Christ-exalting worship. The third is Christ-forming discipleship. And the fourth is Christ-like service. These are our four verticals, our, the four pistons that drive the engine, so to speak. And so it seemed good to me to drop in on one of those four verticals and sort of tease it out a little bit. It's a, this is, this, this series is a bit of a calibration for us. Six months ago, the Lord was pleased to unite two churches into one, the new Pickwood Baptist Church. And so we're doing a calibration according to these four verticals, asking the question, our worship, is it truly Christ-centered? And what does it mean to be Christ-centered in our worship? Here we believe and we teach that there is a God who is worthy of our praise, that He is Lord over all, that He is sovereign over all, that He is just and that He is good. Therefore, He is to be feared and loved and praised and called upon and trusted in and served. And the acceptable way to worship this God has been given to us and instituted by Him. And that he, not, he may not be worshipped according to human imagination, human inventions, or in any way that is not prescribed to us in the Scriptures. That's what we believe. The question we'll be asking in the series is, do we practice that? Do we walk that out? And so we plan to give the next five Sundays to Christ-exalting worship. Does the church exalt Christ in the way that He deserves and in the way He has prescribed? In Christian worship, it falls into two categories, so two columns. The first column is the church gathered, our worship when we gather, with the service, the thing that we're doing right now, the church gathered. Does our worship exalt Christ in the gathering. And the second column, column B, is the church scattered. 
So are we worshiping and exalting Christ in the way we, leave, we live when we live when we leave this place? The first two weeks of the series will be focused on the church gathered, what we do on the Lord's Day. What should Christ-exalting worship look like? This week we'll focus on, in general, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at singing in particular. Weeks three to five will be, will be devoted to the church scattered, how we walk out our worship as followers of Jesus. So we'll look at a, a bunch of different themes. We'll consider uh, church membership. We'll consider church discipline. We'll consider personal holiness, Christian freedom, and the role of the conscience in Christian worship. And then after this series is done, Lord willing, we'll turn to the Old Testament and we'll spend some time together in the book of Lamentations. And that will take us into September before we return to Luke. So that is how your summer is laid out. Let's go ahead and get to work in Christ-centered worship, Christ-exalting worship. We're going to pick up in uh, kind of the middle of a story, verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'll read the passage and then pray and ask for the Lord's help on the rest of our time together, and then we'll work through this passage and some others. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we come to you and ask for help. Please give us your Holy Spirit and teach us from your word. Give us ears that we would hear what your Spirit is saying to us today, that we might learn more about the man, about the work of your Son, Jesus, and how we might, as His people, worship Him in a way that is deserving of Him, worthy of Him, and helpful to us. Do this for Jesus' praise. Amen. Last summer, my family and I... Uh, had the privilege of attending a church service in Tucson, Arizona. The main preaching pastor happened to be out of town that weekend. One of the other pastors preached. It was a small church, and we were the only visitors. The service started with a call to worship and with a prayer. A worship leader got up and led a few songs and hymns, some parts of which were in Spanish, which I love. They recited a creed, and then there was a pastoral prayer, and then there was preaching. 
The pastor took a section of Scripture, read it clearly, expounded upon it verse by verse, brought in some application, and then closed. We received the Lord's Supper. There was a benediction. And I think we sang the doxology. And then we were done. At some point in the middle of this service, it occurred to me. Here I was worshiping in a Christian church with my family. And and we just so happened to be doing the same thing almost 2,000 miles away that my home church was doing that same day. Which just so happened to be the same things that Christian churches have done for 2,000 years. If you were to somehow come across a 1981 DeLorean time machine, and you were to travel back into time, and you were to drop in at any time in church history, at any place in this world, and you were to drop in on a biblically faithful church service, do you know what you would find? You would find men and women gathered on the Lord's Day, reading the Bible, singing, praying, preaching from the Bible, receiving the Lord's Supper, and sometimes doing baptism. Well, the order of the service may be different. The language of the service may be different. If you dropped in on Asia and Africa, the enthusiasm would be very different. But the service would be remarkably similar. Why do you suppose that is? Had those leaders in that church in Tucson tuned in to one of Piqua Baptist's services and modeled their service after ours? Or had our elders tuned into one of theirs and done the same here? No, we didn't even know one another existed. So how can Christian worship 2,000 miles away across 2,000 years be so similar? Well, the answer is because we're reading from the same textbook. The meal may have different spices, but the recipe is the same. Biblically faithful churches will look remarkably similar because we're not guessing about what we should do together on a Sunday morning. The Lord has not left it up to our whims and impulses. He has determined how He is to be worshipped. And that's what we'll be thinking about this morning. Here's the point that I'll be driving home this morning. Christ-exalting worship is governed by God's Word, serious and joyful, ordered and intelligible, correcting and equipping. The Christ-exalting worship is governed by God's Word, and it is serious, and it is joyful, and it is ordered, and it is intelligible, and it is correcting, and it is equipping. So, four parts to that sentence, which we'll unpack as we go along. The first part, Christ-exalting worship, is governed by God's Word. Look again at Acts chapter 2. And devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, as I said, we're dropping in on the middle of a story. So, the risen Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven, where He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And when He was on earth, He promised that He would send the Holy Spirit 
to His disciples who would empower them for witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And the Lord kept His promise. And the Spirit was poured out on 120 believers at a prayer meeting. They became His witnesses of the mighty works of God. And then the apostle Peter stood up and preached. And the Bible says that 3,000 souls were convicted of their sin, repented, and were baptized. And then the very next verse, we have the earliest record of what these Christians devoted themselves to in Christian worship. And you can see it there. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, caring for one another's needs, gladness, generosity, giving praise to God. Any of that sound familiar? Well, it should. That's what we do. When the Lord delivered His people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, He commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. And after God delivered Israel out of Pharaoh's hands, God led them to a mountain called Sinai where He spoke to them. He gave them His Word, His law. And in the law, God prescribed the the way that He was to be worshipped by His people and how His people were to worship Him in the way they lived. They were His people, chosen by grace, redeemed by grace, sanctified by grace, and they were to fulfill His purpose for their saving. And how often throughout the Old Testament did the Lord have to remind Israel, this is why I saved you. You're my people. You're to be different from the nations. You're not to act like them. You're not to worship like them. You're to be different. You're my people. Worship me in the way I have told you. All of this harkens back to the second commandment. If you remember from last year when we spent some time in the Ten Commandments, The second commandment, if you don't remember, is you shall not make for yourself a carved image. And when we spent some time in the second commandment, we we learned that worshiping God means worshiping Him in the way that He has prescribed. And if you remember from earlier this year, you've been reading through the Old Testament in your Bible reading plan. You remember how specific God was about the instructions that He gave to Moses about how to build the tabernacle? It was very detailed down to the very fasteners they were to use. This tells us that God has determined the way that He would be worshipped. He had reasons for this. For His glory. For our good. As we'll learn here in a moment, for our protection, actually. The early church then devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because It focused on the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. The truth about God was central in the Christian's worship. Left to the innovation of man, left to the creativity of man, worship inevitably becomes centered on man. This is what Paul told us in Romans 1, wasn't it? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. If our worship is focused on our needs, then it is focused on ourselves. And we've turned God into a commodity, a means to an end. 
We've turned worship of God into an experience of God. Some years ago, I received an invitation to a church service with the tagline, come get your God moment. And the message was clear. A God moment is what you want. We have God moments, so come and get them. Christ exalting worship puts Christ in the center where He is exalted. And so it's less about a personal experience and a personal preference and is more about lifting up the name, the reputation of Jesus Christ. The worshipers come away not thinking, what a good boy am I, but come away thinking, what a great God have I. The purpose of God is that Jesus Christ, His Son, would be exalted. Ephesians 1, to the praise of His glorious grace, until Christ is all. And therefore, to the degree that we reform our worship gatherings according to Scripture, our worship gatherings cannot help but be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, in every church where God's Word governs the worship, the gathered assembly will look remarkably similar. They will have remarkably similar priorities and perspectives, not identical, as we'll see later in the series, but remarkably similar. We're cooking from the same cookbook. Christ exalting worship is governed by God's Word. That's point one. Point two, Christ exalting worship is serious and joyful. Serious and joyful. Turn your Bibles, if you still have them open, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. That's further back in your Bibles, Hebrews, chapter 12. Page 1009, if you're using one of the church Bibles. Just a couple of verses here I would like you to consider about the seriousness and joyfulness of Christian worship. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29 is all we'll be having time to consider. The author of Hebrews writes this about worship. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. When Israel came to the base of that mountain from which God spoke to them, the people trembled in fear. In fact, they got to a place where they told Moses, no, you go up the mountain, you talk to God, you tell us what He says, but we don't want God to speak to us directly, that'll kill us. There's a story in Leviticus chapter 10 where a couple fellas by the names of Nadab and Abihu, burned incense before the Lord in a way that he had not commanded. And these were not just a couple of random guys. These were Aaron's sons. They were Moses' own nephews. They should have known better. But they were doing innovation in the worship of Yahweh. And the Bible says, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. 
Christian worship is serious. This isn't a production. Preachers aren't storytellers or motivational speakers or comedians. We are dealing in eternal matters. So frivolity, lightness in worship, fails to account for who it is that we're worshiping. This is Almighty God that we're talking about. The uncreated creator, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the thrice-holy God, the consuming fire. And so note what the author of Hebrews tells us, what constitutes acceptable worship. It is with reverence and awe. Now, through Jesus Christ, we approach the throne of God boldly. That's true. But not lightly. Not flippantly. Let us not forget that the ground upon which we stand was stamped level by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that the only reason that you or I may stand before the throne is because of the blood of the innocent one was shed in our place for our sins. That upon our own merits, we have no right to be there. It is only upon the merits of the sinless Son of God, for it is on Christ the solid rock we stand. When the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, When he saw angels surrounding the throne crying out, holy, 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 Isaiah fell to the ground. Woe is me, the prophet said, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then an extraordinary thing happened. One of the angels took a burning coal from the presence of the Lord and touched the prophet's mouth. The angel said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So the prophet saw the Lord high and lifted up, holy beyond description, and immediately recognized, I'm not like him. I'm not like that. I shouldn't be here. Then from the presence of God came Isaiah's salvation. Something from the presence of God touched the man, and it didn't kill the man, it cleansed the man. It took his guilt away, atoned for his sin. This was a foreshadowing of Christ to come, that God the Son would come from the presence of God, true God from true God, who would wrap himself in humanity. He would live without sin. He would bear the sins of the world. On the cross, God poured out the penalty of our sin upon his Son. He died, and God raised him from the dead on the third day. And all who turn to him in faith are forgiven and cleansed by the Master's healing touch. Our guilt is taken away. Our sin is atoned. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, sinner, turn to Jesus Christ today. No matter how wicked your life, no matter how wicked the associations in your life, 
No matter what you've done, when you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, God is pleased to pour out on you unlimited mercy, unlimited grace. That your dirtiness, filthiness goes on Christ and His purity and righteousness goes on you. Repent and believe and then tell someone. I'll be standing by those double doors on your way out. I'd love to meet you and I'd love to tell you more about Jesus Christ and the purity, the righteousness that He gives to us by faith. For all who turn to Jesus Christ, this is what happens. God the Son came from the presence of God, touched your life, took away your guilt, took away your sin, took away all of the things that were ruining your life, gave you peace with God and everlasting joy. And all that is left for you, dear Christian, is to rejoice in God's glory by exalting God's Son. This is your purpose in your life, to be a Christ-exalting worshiper. So yes, worshiping God is most serious and most joyful. Because of who He is, because of what He has done, we worship the Lord with profound joy. Were you listening when Pastor Steve opened the service today from Psalm 100? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Oh, Christian worship may be serious, but it is not gloomy. In His presence, there is joy. What did Paul say? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. A crabby Christian is a walking contradiction. We are people of indomitable joy. So Christ's exalting worship is first governed by God's Word. Second, it is serious and it is joyful. And third, it is ordered and intelligible. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's the other way, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Page 960, 961 in the church Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to read it. Originally, I wanted to read the whole chapter. It's so helpful to make these points, but we won't have time for that. Let's read sections. We'll pick up reading verse 6. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 6. We'll give you a second to get there. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. 
But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves. Since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving? When he doesn't know what you're saying. You may not be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. There's a lot here, and some of it's difficult. What exactly Paul means by prophecy and tongues in this passage is beyond the scope of our study today. And Lord willing, we'll return to 1 Corinthians sometime later. After the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayers, the church began to grow, as we read. Remember, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The gospel was expanding out of Jerusalem into all the places that God said it would. And it eventually made it to places like Corinth. And Corinth was a port city and largely occupied by non-Jews. The Lord was pleased to save some people and gather them into the church in Corinth. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that the church in Corinth had, uh, shall we say, problems. Lots of them, big ones. Not least of of which were the problems in their worship gatherings. It was a mess. Factions were seeking to undermine Christian unity, False teachers were drawing people away from Paul. Sin was being celebrated in their membership. Authority structures were being subverted. And the spiritual gifts were being misused. It was a mess. And Paul writes this letter and the other one to rebuke them and to correct them. We didn't give up on them. He stuck with them. But the point I would like you to see is that whatever we understand tongues to be in in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's concern for their worship gatherings is intelligibility. In order for our worship gatherings to exalt Christ and to edify one another, they need to be intelligible. We need to be able to understand what is being said. Otherwise, it's no benefit. Verse 6. How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? The benefit of Christian worship comes from the revelation of God, from the knowledge of God, from prophecy and teaching about God. And so for our worship gatherings to exalt Christ, they must be coherent. They must be clear. They must be able to be understood. When the members of the Corinthian church gathered, so they could showcase their ability to speak in tongues. No one was understanding what was being said, and so no one was being benefited or built up. The worship gatherings were a circus. Christ was not central. The message was dissonant. The purposes were unclear. When 
Christian gatherings go sideways, they become more about the Christian than the Christ. Second Peter chapter 1 says that grace and peace is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. So for us to grow in grace and peace, we must grow in our knowledge of God. And for that to happen, our services need to be understandable, which means, Pickle Baptist, that most of our gatherings will be geared toward the mind and not the heart, not the emotions. Geared toward the mind, not exclusive of the emotions, but not geared toward them. And this is because what we believe determines how we feel. What we believe determines how we will act, how we feel. Our world seems to have that flipped around. But Christians know that what we think determines how we act and feel. And so, in the church, we aim at the mind intelligibility. You don't have to turn there, but I do have some slides here. I just want you to know that this is how it's always been. It's geared to, to understandability, intelligibility at the mind. When God gathered exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, listen to the way the Bible says they, what they did in Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And he read from it in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And later in the chapter, after this, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So the gathered assembly must be understandable. That is the only way it is beneficial. And so then that follows. That in order for the worship gathering to be intelligible, it must be orderly. There must be a structure. So if you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, skip down to the very end. Verses 39 and 40. Paul says, so my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. All things in the worship gathering must be decent and in order, proper and in an orderly manner. So it's not a free for all. We should have an order to things. Every Sunday you come to church. There is an order of worship. It's what we call a liturgy, which is a word that some of you may only be familiar with in high churches. But that's just the way Christians have done it for a long, long time. And if you have friends who say, well, we don't do liturgy in our church. Well, they actually do. Liturgy just means order, structure. The liturgy of the church 
should be intentionally designed to exalt Christ and to be clear and coherent. And if you pay close attention to our liturgy that we use here, it actually models the gospel. Just look carefully next time at the order of service. So Christ-centered worship is governed by Scripture. It is serious and joyful. It is ordered and intelligent, intelligible. And then finally, it is correcting and equipping. We have only a few more minutes. Turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, which I think is on page 996 of the church Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to be reading from verse 14. Now, verse 16 down into chapter 4. You should know the chapter divisions were not original to Paul. They were put in there later, and sometimes the fellow who did it didn't do a good job. Here, he didn't do a very good job. This flows from verse 16 right into chapter 4. Shouldn't have been a division there. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul charges young pastor Timothy, preach the word, pastor, in season and out of season, preach the word when it's popular pastor, and preach the word when it's not popular pastor. Because there's a time coming that people won't endure sound teaching. The churches will hire preachers to suit their passions, to, to, to say things that they want to hear. And they'll turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Now, You should know that this isn't a first century problem. This is an every century problem. So let us all be aware of this danger. Scripture reproves us, corrects us. That's what it does. When the Bible is faithfully preached, God's people will be corrected. Told that they're doing something wrong, and shown how to do that thing right. So if you are rarely corrected by your church, either the preacher is not doing his job or you refuse to be corrected. Either one is bad. I'm just going to say, 
that if you can't remember the last time you were corrected in church, either the problem is with my teaching or your heart. It is possible that I'm not reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching. It's also possible that you're not teachable. And there are hardly anything more damaging to a church than when the preacher doesn't preach and the people can't be taught. So, suffice what Paul is saying here to Timothy, that if the preacher is doing his job correctly, there are going to be times when the people hear things they don't like. And that's for our good. It's meant to show us our sin and point us to our Savior and to train us in righteousness and to equip us for the work of the ministry. So Christ's exalting worship is correcting. It's part of what it is. And that correction is an equipping. There's a danger that is, I don't know, somewhat unique to our day. That if you don't like your preacher... Well, you can easily find one on YouTube more suited to your passions. I thank God that He has blessed the church in the 21st century with such rich resources. But just let us all know that a YouTube preacher makes a poor substitute for a local pastor. That a YouTube preacher might be amazing. I'm certain that this text can be preached by many pastors better than me. I'm certain of it. But I pray for you. I know your name. I'm going to stand before the Lord of glory and give account for your soul. But that YouTube preacher won't. Let that weigh on you. You should listen to preachers on YouTube, as long as they're faithful and biblical and right, good and edifying, but not as a substitute. Maybe a supplement, but certainly not as a substitute for the local church. Christ-exalting worship puts Christ in the center, where we look upon Him and we see His bigness and we see His beauty as we gaze with wonder upon the infinite exaltation and infinite condescension of God the Son. Our hearts are lifted when we hear Him roaring like a lion, and they're calmed when we sit with Him in silence like a lamb. That our heads fall when we see our sinfulness and we beat upon our breasts. But our spirits soar when He lifts our chin and looks into our eyes and says, You're mine, my son, my daughter, my friend. Christ's exalting worship presents a Savior that is bigger than our sin, bigger than our shame, bigger than our suffering. A Savior who is with us in the trenches, near us when we hit rock bottom. And we come away from church praising the one who dwells in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Christ exalting worship puts Christ forward, puts Christ first. For what else is worthy of our attention? What else is more fascinating than Him? What else would we do except be enthralled by the one who is most enthralling? 
We exalt Christ in our worship simply because he's worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven and God of all grace, you are worthy of all of our worship. The one before, before whom angels bow, the creator, the sustainer. You are high and lifted up. You inhabit eternity. Your name is holy. Please receive our thanks this morning. You have given us ears. Now may they hear what your spirit has spoken to us through your word. And Father, we confess that we have made our worship gatherings more about ourselves than your son. And that when Jesus becomes small, we become big. And we turn in on ourselves and we become unteachable. And so, Lord, forgive us for accumulating teachers to suit our own passions. And, Lord, protect PBC from losing her way. Keep our elders and our leaders humble. Keep them teachable. Forgive us for any time that we have made this church about something other than proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Please be with us in this series and teach us how our worship ought to be more Christ-exalting. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. One of the things we do towards the end of our service is we go to the Lord and confess our sins, and then we search His Word for an assurance that those who are trusting in Jesus Christ are forgiven of those sins. And so from 1 John chapter 1, we read, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.